0: This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. In constructing this, I I decided to go back to um, the way in which biblical studies as a discipline, as a formal discipline in academia, how it developed, and how it, um, the way that it developed really took aim at one important first principle, which is that the Bible is revealed truth. So in, if I were to really summarize this uh, lecture in a practic- or just one syllogism, three, three simple statements, it would be that, in fact, yes, the Bible is revealed truth. Truth is the foundation of rational thought Therefore, the Bible has a part to play in the foundation of rational thought. Now, of course, it's it's not quite as simple as all of that. So what I want to do in the first part of this lecture is to really uh, consider in some degree of detail the what I would call historical context in which this first principle that the Bible is revealed truth that it has divine origins, that it is authoritative, that this first principle was not able to survive in the universities of the enlightenment, and it was not able to survive as biblical studies developed into a proper discipline academically. So there's a perceived tension between saying that this comes from God, that God is the origin of the Bible, in some sense, and then saying that, yes, I'm still a rational thinker, on the other hand. So in the first part of this lecture, I'd like to consider that kind of conundrum as it kind of developed historically. And then in the second part of the lecture, what I would like to do is to pivot to present the Catholic response to this position, to this conundrum, how we approach the Bible in the Catholic tradition and how this Bible, this authority, this revealed truth does function within the well-lived intellectual life and how it really is an outworking of the principle of faith-seeking understanding. So I'm going to proceed in these two main parts. And to begin with, what I'd like to do is to consider an analogy for the ways that the Bible and study of the Bible uh, is sometimes misunderstood and mischaracterized. And in order to do that, the analogy that I would propose is that of a movie adaptation of a book. So there are tons and tons and tons of books, um, classics of literature, serial novels, et cetera, that are developed into books, or that, that, that are books that are developed into movies. One that was particularly strikingly terrible was the 1995 adaptation of Nathaniel Hawthorne's famous novel, The Scarlet Letter. That, that novel, I thought, was excellent. I read it in high school. I really got a lot out of it the number of times that I've read it. But in 1995, Demi Moore played Hester Prynne, and I think Gary Oldman was the, uh, the beau in that movie. So we have this wonderful novel, and in it, Nathaniel Hawthorne was examining some of the social moors, the taboos, of Puritan society that he thought were still operative and problematic in his own day. Hester Prynne was this heroine. She had lost her husband, or so she thought, and then she had an affair. She was caught because she became pregnant, and then she really received the ire of this small New England community. The way that Nathaniel Hawthorne really gets at some of these uh, Uh, kinds of contradictions in the society is truly a masterpiece. He describes the scarlet letter, the A for adultery, that she had to wear on her chest in great detail. It was a beautiful letter. It had this gold embroidering. So his point implicitly is that the mark of shame that she was given turned into a mark of pride. And in the fact that she was able to stand up for herself, she was able to expose some of the hypocrisy and so on and so forth of the society. Now, all of that is flattened out in the movie. You don't get any of that. It's really a kind of love story. It's a hypersexualized romance, Hollywood romance. And you almost get the sense that Hester Prynne, played by Demi Moore, is in fact enslaved to her passions. She's not a heroine at all, but she becomes a tragic character. And my point here is that. If all you knew about the story, The Scarlet Letter, was through this 1995 film, you would be horribly misled as to the point of the story. You wouldn't really know what this novel was about. You would know some of the facts and some of the plot points, but you wouldn't really be able to understand what the story really was. And I would argue that the same thing holds true frequently with the Bible, with the scripture. How it is sometimes misread, mischaracterized, missummarized, and misused in, well, academia, but also in society at large, becomes a problem. And the way that uh, what I would call rationalist enlightenment thinkers have responded to that through the centuries, is to set the Bible aside. So I can think of two really good examples. Uh, you know, Galileo Galilei, in 1633, he had to recant his theory that the earth revolved around the sun. Why did he have to recant that? It's because he was put on trial, an ecclesial trial, and it the evidence that was adduced against his theory, which I think if I'm not mistaken, happens to be true, or I mean, it's relatively well-established that the earth revolves around the sun. Uh, That's my bad attempt at a joke there. Uh, Okay, so anyway, so he's right about this, but he has to recant it because it's thought to contradict Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, the creation accounts. So folks like Archbishop Piccolomini, they put him on trial and ask him to recant and he eventually did that. But therein lies a problem. The Bible was misread and misapplied in this instance, and that episode became emblematic for the conflict or the supposed perceived conflict between biblical faith, faith, and reason, science. Scientific inquiry and biblical faith don't go together. That's the conclusion. Another more proximate example would also be good. Uh, there is something called the, I, I guess it might be nicknamed the, Scope, the Scopes Monkey Trial. So this was in 1925. John T. Scopes was a substitute teacher in the great state of Tennessee. And he, was, he had to teach science class. So I'm glad that I chose a lot of these examples because of the high degree of science uh, people in the, in the audience. But in any case, there was something called the Butler Act. And the Butler Act was passed stating that you could not teach evolution in the classroom or you'd have to pay a fine, all right? So Scopes, uh, as it came out later, he was propositioned by the ACLU and he allowed them to make it known that he taught evolution in this class, even though he actually didn't. But they, they wanted an excuse to go to trial and to repeal this law. The reason why I bring this example up was because one of the expert witnesses that was called in this trial was William Jennings Bryan, who was a politician, but he was called as an expert Bible witness. Even though he didn't have a degree in biblical studies, he was pronounced in this trial to be an expert witness on the Bible because he read it a lot. And his basic uh, position on the Bible was that what it says we should, be, what we should take literally, that what it puts forward for us to believe we should take as a matter of faith. I believe everything in the Bible should be accepted as it is given there. That is what he said. So whether it was Jonah and the great fish or Genesis 1-2, to we ought to accept how it is given there. Now, ultimately, the judge threw out a lot of this testimony because it wasn't entirely relevant to the case, But as I'm talking about that judge, Judge John Ralston, he actually, uh, he began this trial by quoting from Genesis. He brought a Bible into his courtroom and then quoted from Genesis and then also from the Butler Act. So I don't know that that would happen today. But this, again, I think highlights the fact that especially in the United States, the Bible is sometimes misread, mischaracterized, and misapplied. Another good example that comes to mind would be, uh, you know, in the Civil War, the southern college, or the southern states they used the text of Exodus to depict Abraham Lincoln as Pharaoh, and they depicted themselves as the poor Israelites who were in slavery to the northern states. The supreme height of irony there, I think. But nonetheless, they are using the Bible as an excuse, as a weapon of sorts, to get what they want, to impact public policy, civil law, uh, to do the things that they want to do. That is something that has happened many times in history, and these are, I think, the reasons why many rationalist Enlightenment thinkers But also, modern scientific thinkers have opted to leave the Bible aside. They have advocated putting it down because it's not relevant to scientific inquiry, in effect, is oppositional to scientific inquiry. It's not a part of the well-reasoned life. There are... So there are. this is the first of two rational rational responses that I would say are quite common in the face of this type of misuse of the Bible, the, that first one, setting it aside. If we go uh, all the way back to the year 1670, an uh, Enlightenment thinker by the name of Baruch de Spinoza, in 1670, he wrote this thing called the Theological Political Treaties, And reflecting on some of these conflicts in society at that time, he suggested that there are really two domains of knowledge. There's the domain of knowledge of things as they really are, reality. This is what science and the scientific method is meant to examine. And then there is the domain of the things uh, that are in the Bible. Basically, he attributed the religious values the religious truths, to this other domain of knowledge. And he wanted them to be completely separate, as though they had no where point of contact, there was no way to correlate them. The point was that scientific inquiry was the only way to speak about reality, whereas the Bible and religion was a way of speaking about vague ideals that you might like. So he advocated this kind of separation, which is one that has been a hallmark of atheist, rationalist thinkers throughout the centuries. So recently, more recently, that is, Richard Dawkins uh, articulated this position. Even though he was an atheist, he did admit that the Bible could be studied, but that if it is studied, it should be taught emphatically, quote, emphatically, not as reality. Because it is fiction. It is myth. It is poetry. It is anything but reality." End quote. So the first type of response then to these types of problems that arise uh, when the Bible is mischaracterized and misused is this response that some rationalist thinkers have of setting it aside. The second response is what I would call a uh, response of rationalizing the Bible. And by that, I mean that it is the um, the attempt to filter, to edit, to amend the biblical text so that it fits into a rational worldview. So the Bible has content within it, obviously, that is miraculous, that is supernatural. And it is believed to come from a divine origin. It is a supernatural authority attached to it. And this process of rationalizing the Bible is essentially a two-fold process of filtering out all of those supernatural types of uh, accounts in the Bible and then a hypothesizing, Of what these supernatural accounts perhaps were meant to really describe. What is the reality behind these irrational embellishments, these irrational supernatural occurrences in the Bible? So in in this process, we could look at the example of, uh, for example, um, the, excuse me, I lost my place, uh, The examples such as the exodus from Egypt or Joshua stopping the sun at midday during the battle with Amorite kings or Bartimaeus receiving sight or Jesus Christ dying and rising from the dead. These are all supernatural occurrences and they're all things that need to be filtered out of the biblical text. They need to be identified as unhistorical, and then we need to give a more rational version or account of what the biblical author was likely trying to describe, but could not do so. So that is the twofold process that I want to articulate as, uh, as being applied to the Bible through the development of the discipline of biblical studies in the university. So what I'm going to do is to draw a little bit on this uh, seminal work by a man named Edward Farley, who was a Presbyterian uh, minister and theologian. And he wrote a book called Theologia, the, uh, the Fragmentation and Unity of Theological Education. This was in 1983 that he wrote this book. But his process in this book is to what he calls undergo the archaeology of theology. So he wants to peel back how we got this discipline of theology. And he traces it historically all the way to 18th and 19th century Germany and also England. This is a time when universities were becoming, uh, you could say, more secular. But they were also becoming more focused on the hard sciences. And in this Enlightenment rationalist milieu, the question that was put to theology was, what purpose do you serve? Theology, why are you even here? Why is theology even a discipline in the university? So there was a great need to justify its existence. And because scripture was understood to be the foundation of theology, the question really devolved to scripture. Why is the Bible studied at all in the university, and what, it, what sense does it make to talk about it as its own discipline? So by turns, the rationalists, eventually rationalist thinkers like Spinoza uh, and a man named Johann August Ernesti, they concluded that the Bible shouldn't be really studied as its own thing, as its own discipline. Rather, it should be just a part of ancient history or a part of philology in ancient linguistics. There's no reason to privilege the Bible on its own. It should actually be a part of these other disciplines that already exist. It should be subsumed under these types of humanitarian, or the, the humanities, the sciences, by which people study history and human language. So that started to happen in Ernesti, this man that I'm talking about, who is an 18th century German rationalist theologian. He developed and organized a method of analyzing the Bible and especially the New Testament according to the same philological and grammatical principles as the classics of Roman and Greek literature. So he took the insights from these languages and he applied them to the biblical texts. That was his main method and his contribution. Now it should be said that this widespread adoption of the these types of methods were not this was not all bad. Uh, there was in fact a great benefit because it helped us to understand things about the biblical text that we hadn't known previously for example this is uh, i don't know if anyone has ever studied ancient hebrew before but it was a relatively unknown that there is a verbal system that is always uh, three consonants there in every verb in hebrew is fundamentally based on three consonants there are always three consonants long And we can analyze verbs more accurately by understanding this principle and figuring out how these verbs morph and change and how these paradigms function. These were insights that were gained during this period where grammatical analysis, formal grammatical analysis was developed. It's not that important of an example, but it does help to give you a picture of the fact that there were things about Hebrew and Greek, and the Hebrew and the Greek of the Bible, that were not understood very well for 1,500 years or longer, 1,600, 1,700 years, that became clearer right in this period as this was starting to be studied in a formal, uh, focused way in the university. And so there was some benefit to this. Yet there were also undeniably negative effects of this type of scrutiny of the Bible And the first of all, this type of approach that is uh, treating the Bible as any other historical text eventually led to the displacement of the Bible as the foundation of theology. This happened because it came to require such a great degree of training in ancient languages, in history, in archaeology, and so forth, that it was no longer something that was studied formally by other theologians. It was no longer something that was studied by people seeking to keep faith and reason united. It became the purview of specialists. And so you started to have people who didn't believe in God and people who didn't believe in the divine origin of the Bible studying the Bible. Then they took their findings that this uh, proof that this Bible was written by human beings. They took that as proof that there was no God, and this God certainly did not write or could not be said to be the origin of the Bible. So there was this implicit principle that there had to be a mutually exclusive authorship. Because we've proven that the Bible was written by human beings, It could not be written or attributed to God in any way. That was the movement that the rationalist, within this rationalist study of the Bible in the Enlightenment period. The second part of this uh, rationalist reading of the Bible, though, as I mentioned, is really a matter of putting something back in, if I could put it that way, adding something back into the Bible after identifying these, uh, these supernatural and unhistorical elements of the Bible. So what happened, um, and before, before I go on there, I, I should, uh, sorry, I'm interrupting myself here. There's a really great example of what I'm talking about in the Jefferson Bible. If you've ever heard of this, it's nicknamed the Jefferson Bible. So Thomas Jefferson, Mr. Jefferson, who was very much an Enlightenment kind of man, he was adamant that there was something worthwhile in reading the Bible. So he didn't want to simply set it aside as other rationalists had advocated. He also advocated rather filtering it, taking out that which is supernatural. So what he did was he took his printed Bible, he took a small knife, and he just cut out the passages that he thought were in accord with his Enlightenment principles and ideals. And he pasted them in a small leather-bound book. So what he was left with was an 84-page volume, small 84-page volume called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And for him, this 84-page volume was something that an Enlightenment thinker could read and reflect fruitfully upon And this was all that there was left of the Bible that was really worthwhile. The rest of the stuff really ought to be set aside because it was filled with irrational things. Again, the sun stopping in the sky, people passing through the Dead Sea on dry ground. This is absurd. So you just focus on the teachings that are in accord with the Enlightenment principles. Now, as I said... After that process of filtration, then, there needs to be a hypothesis put forward of what really happened. So when Joshua is said to hold up the sun and the moon in the sky, well, that was really probably an eclipse that he just didn't understand what was happening. So he described it the way he did because he didn't have access to scientific knowledge about these processes in the natural world. Similarly, the Exodus, they probably actually crossed one of these small sea uh, marshes, uh, like little lakes, little marshes. There was a strong southerly wind that pushed all of the water back, and it was something like a reverse storm surge, a meteorological phenomenon of some sort. There's a man by the name of Albert Schweitzer who wrote The Quest for the Historical Jesus, and he basically brings together all of these different explanations of what really happened with Jesus Christ. So what does he say? There is this Italian biblical scholar who put forward the theory that Luke, who was thought to be a doctor, gave Jesus a little sedative before the crucifixion. So he essentially was able to slow down his breathing, his heart rate. When he was crucified then, he didn't bleed as much, and he didn't actually die on the cross. They were able to take him down, put him in the tomb, and then Luke came by with a nice uh, kind of combination of herbs and medicine and was able to revive him. So this was thought to be rational, more rational, uh, and was, was the way in which you could hold rationally that there was some truth to the Bible. You had to first filter it and then edit it. First identify what's unhistorical and irrational and then rationalize it. That was the movement, okay? So I think it you know, can be seen that this is somewhat a bit fanciful. So as biblical studies developed... There, there, became a little bit more of an inbuilt um, kind of ch- a, ch- a system check on this type of behavior or this type of rationalist explanation. So there, that this was these types of things that I'm just describing about the life of Christ and you know Saint Luke bringing him back from the dead or you know reviving him through this secret kind of medical knowledge. This was more in the Enlightenment period of the. 18th and 19th century in the 20th century as we've had discoveries from the archaeological field and Also from other parts of ancient history. This has become something of a little bit um, Frowned upon type of explanation. So this is the my point is that biblical studies has re, uh sort of Recongealed if I can put it that way into one formal discipline by drawing on the insights of archaeology and ancient textual studies. The problem though is that the rationalist kind of impulse still is there, which is to say that the the Bible is still understood to be the worst historical source that you can have because it contains miraculous elements, and it is thought to be derived or have God as its origin. So most rationalist biblical scholars or archaeologists will privilege other sources of historical information over the biblical text. A good example of this, if you've ever read 2 Kings, the 2nd book of Kings chapters 18 to 19, this recounts a An Assyrian king called Sennacherib, who brought a giant army into the southern kingdom of Israel called Judah, conquered a bunch of the different cities, and then laid siege to Jerusalem. So this siege lasted several months, and the king of Jerusalem was King Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, and this is where he calls on his prophet Isaiah to ask God to intervene, Isaiah goes away and prays, and then he gives Hezekiah the message that if you repent, God will act for you. So Hezekiah does go away, he prays, and lo and behold, there's this account that 180,000, 185,000 of the soldiers died at the hands of an angel. Okay, that's pretty irrational according to the rationalists, that this this is something that is impossible, it could not happen. So this other document from the annals of Sennacherib, this is a giant stone pillar with a foreign script called Akkadian uh, inscribed on it. We have one in Chicago, one in London, and one uh, in Jerusalem. There are three different copies of this. All of these events are narrated there in very similar terms. But the difference is that Sennacherib goes on and says, that he shut King Hezekiah up in his city, Jerusalem, like a squawking bird in its cage. He says that he took all of King Hezekiah's riches, that he made him essentially like a servant. He proved that his God was worthless and powerless. But Sennacherib says that he went away without conquering Jerusalem, without elaboration. Now my point here is that most scholars would automatically privilege Sennacherib's account. They would usually use it to edit the biblical account. But then later on, we found that there is this line in Josephus, another ancient historian, who explains that in fact, there was a pestilence that came upon these soldiers and many of them died. And there is a good theory that this was brought into their camp by mice. There was some sort of plague that was being spread by mice here. So there is some historical plausibility, and frequently in ancient texts, pestilence is attributed to God as a kind of divine intervention, sometimes in semi-angelic language. So if you think to the ten signs, the ten plagues of the Exodus account, Some of these plagues, these boils, these types of diseases, the pestilence that befell the livestock of the Egyptians, these are all attributed to God as intervening in history. It is a theological description of a natural event. It's not meant to be a precisely disinterested historical account. The Bible is not history in any way that we would typically use the word history. It always has an agenda, if you want to call it that. But so do the other ancient texts. Josephus's history was meant to entertain. This Sennacherib's annals, his history of his military campaign, they were meant to aggrandize himself, to show himself to be the best Assyrian king whoever was. It was propaganda. That's what we understand about ancient texts now. They're not disinterested texts. My point here is that through the course of these, the development of biblical studies, we've come to understand more and more about what it means to say that the Bible is ancient literature, that the Bible is ancient writing like other kinds of ancient writing. And so this leads me into my my, uh, presentation of the Catholic approach to biblical interpretation, which does have this in common with the rationalist Enlightenment uh, move to interpretation. It is human language. And as such, it should be interpreted as human language. The Bible should be interpreted like other kinds of ancient works, like other kinds of ancient texts. This is precisely because we affirm that it was written by human beings. So the most important document, the most important doctrinal statement that the Church has on this subject is De Verbum. It's the Vatican II document, which is Latin for Word of God. Okay, it says that because God speaks in sacred scripture through humans in a human fashion, the interpreter of sacred scripture, in order to see clearly what God wanted to communicate to us, should carefully investigate what meaning the sacred writers really intended. And to do that, attention has to be paid, among other things, to literary forms because truth is set forth and expressed differently in texts that are variously historical, prophetic, poetic, or other forms of discourse. The point there is that while it is true that this is all human language and we affirm that, it also affirms for the first time that there are these different genres that need to be taken into account. The type of thing that is intended to be written, the way that the human author is intending to communicate something, must be understood according to the ancient genres that are being examined. So again, there is no such thing as disinterested history in the ancient world, so we should not expect to read the biblical books that are meant to be historical as disinterested history. The history of 1st and 2nd Kings, those two books, for example. This is meant to give us a theological rationale, a theological reason why God allowed the people to be exiled into Babylon. It is not about simply describing past events accurately for the sake of describing past events accurately. It's for the purpose of giving this theological explanation. Now, a rationalist reader of the Bible would immediately object to this description of uh, Dei Verbum that it attributes the Bible to God, that there is a divine origin. And this is very true. The point that I want to make here is that this is a first principle that we hold within Catholic interpretation. This question of divine origin is one that we essentially have to let rest uh, on the level of faith. We either believe that God exists or don't, and if God exists, we either believe that God is the type of God who intervenes in history or doesn't, and we either believe that God revealed these first principles of truth to human beings or that he did not. So, What I want to suggest is that this uh, question of divine origin is the point at which there is the sharpest of contrasts between the rationalist approach and the Catholic approach to interpreting the Bible. And it bears stating, again, that this is a matter of a priori first principles. Because rationalists hold that God does not intervene or act in the world, either because this is not in accord with God's nature or because God simply doesn't exist. I just would reiterate here that it's not immediately clear or self-evidently clear as to why the question of God's existence should immediately be cast in terms of rational and irrational, that it is rational not to believe, but it is irrational to believe. So, it's very much a question of how we approach the self evidence of this first principle. In any case, we can see that in the document Dei Verbum, the church does indeed affirm that the word of God is the, the scripture, is the word of God, because God is its author. Another quote God chose men, and while employed by him, they made use of their own powers and abilities, so that with him acting in them and through them, they as true authors consigned to writing everything that God wanted. This teaching is sometimes referred to as the teaching, the doctrine of dual authorship, but we in the Catholic tradition believe that the scripture is attributable, yes, to human authors, but with God also as an author, as an originator of the biblical text. So God through the Holy Spirit, consigns or employs individual people to, he gives them this message to communicate in human writing. The question here then arises, how do we understand the relationship between this divine author and the human author? And I could begin by stating this negatively. The human author is not not reduced to a mere a tape recorder or a mere pencil in the hand of God. The human author positively maintains function of his or her intellect and will. They are true human authors. We, in the Catholic tradition, in St. Thomas's philosophy and Aristotelian philosophy, would draw on the concept of instrumentality to understand this that God uses the human author as an instrument. Now, what does this mean? For Thomas Aquinas, every instrument, when acting as an instrument, has two different effects. One that pertains to it according to its own nature, and one that pertains to it insofar as it is moved by a primary agent, and that transcends its own nature. So if we can think of, in simplistic terms, a knife, of its own nature, a knife is sharp, it has the ability to cut, okay, it is in accord with its own nature to cut, yet, for a knife to actually cut something, it requires someone to pick it up and do the cutting, it requires another agent. The actual act of cutting transcends. The nature of the knife. In a similar way, that's what's going on with the human author. It is in accord with the nature of the human author to write things down, to write stories, to write poems, etc. But it is only because God, as the primary agent, employs this author that there's a secondary effect, a transcendent effect, namely that this human language can communicate divine truth. So there is a primary effect of the human language being written down, but there is a secondary transcendent effect of it communicating divine truth. This is the fundamental place or foundation of the Catholic approach to the Bible that distinguishes it from this rationalist enlightenment approach. Because it means that we have to do two things. First of all, yes, we have to examine the Bible according to the principles of ancient writings, the principle of these ancient genres of writings, these literary forms. But then at the same time, we have to pay attention to the transcendent message, the unity of the message of the entire whole of the Bible. So we don't atomize it and simply focus on this or that passage, but we keep an eye on, so to speak, the entire message of the whole, recognizing that there is something transcendent. There is a way that it communicates truth that isn't just truth about the 10th century BC or the 1st century BC, but is truth, absolutely speaking, truth that transcends, truth that has significance for us even today. That is the fundamental importance of grasping this dual authorship that is the foundation of Catholic biblical interpretation. Now to conclude, what I'd like to do is just to consider one example of how this really plays out in interpreting a biblical text, like one that I've mentioned already, Genesis one through three, okay? So this is a particularly important topic particularly in the United States, I think, uh, there still is a great deal of um, animosity amongst various forms of Christianity toward evolution and evolutionary biology and so forth. And I would say that this actually hits a little bit um, closer home to me because I've been working on this uh, high school curriculum for Catholic high schools with some Ann Arbor Dominican sisters. We're trying to uh, do a a kind of faith-seeking, understanding curriculum between science and faith in high schools. So I'm writing modules and lessons about the Bible as they're writing modules and lessons about evolutionary biology and different other hard sciences that uh, I don't really understand very well at all. So we're working together on this. And one of the things that they did in preparation for our project was they put out a poll to the uh, teachers of Catholic uh, high schools, as well as the students, Catholic high schools and middle, middle schools. The overwhelming majority of them responded that they didn't think that evolution was compatible with Catholic faith. Most of them said, you cannot believe in evolution and also be a Catholic, you can't. So there's this great misunderstanding that, they, that these are somehow incompatible, and the citation is always put forward well that 's not what Genesis says, but it's the, we have to believe what the Bible says that this this biblical text, Genesis one through three, obviously there wasn't evolution. The point that I want to bring home here is that if we actually read the biblical text according to the principles of the church, we understand that it is an example of a creation account, an ancient creation account. There were actually more of these throughout Mesopotamia and Egypt and Canaan, ancient Canaan. So things like the Enuma Elish, the Atrahasis epic, fun-sounding things like that. These all recount in very similar details the creation of humankind, the origins of evil and some sort of primordial flood so human beings are created out of mud and clay in other ancient creation accounts there is a kind of disobedience to the gods in other creation accounts as well there's even uh, in the Enuma elish this giant flood that people are saved from by being put in a big basket okay so there are these parallels that do exist and yet, it's the distinctiveness of this Genesis creation account, in light of those similarities, that truly communicates a degree of meaning. For example, this is the only one where God simply creates by speaking. There, in all the other ones, God has to create only by doing battle with the other gods. So, for example, in the new Enuma Elish. There is a showdown between a storm god and a sea goddess, a dragon, and the storm god eventually defeats her, splits her corpse in two, stretches her hide out to become the stars and the, the sky, and then puts the other half of her corpse down as the earth. Then he slaughters her main general, takes the blood of that general, mixes it with the clay to animate human beings. So we're made out of blood from deceased gods that lost this giant primordial battle. That's a lot different than what we get in Genesis 1-2, to where we get God forming with care Adam and Eve and breathing the breath of life into them. This is the kind of thing that we're meant to do in biblical analysis in the church. We read all of these different types of literary forms in order to get a better sense of what the Bible is saying, to get a better appreciation of how it's communicating the truth that it is communicating. And the last point that I want to make here is just to say that Genesis 1-2, to it's not meant, not, not, not meant to accurately communicate the material processes and origins of the universe and of humankind. Just like we saw with history, that was not meant to be an accurate portrayal of events long ago, this is not meant to be a scientific account of how things came to be in the way that we normally use that kind of language of science and scientific inquiry. It's not trying to do the same thing as science is. It's not. They're communicating truth in two different ways on two different levels. So they are commensurable. But we have to do the work to read it in its ancient context to understand this and appreciate it. It is true that the human author was deficient in his knowledge about the universe. He didn't know probably as much as any of you do, uh, I would guess, in the room. Okay, he describes in Genesis 1, the sky as a firmament, a rakiah. What is that? It is this very small and thin, very, very thin kind of metal dome that is placed over the, over the world. This metal dome is that which keeps all of this big celestial sea above, up there, from flooding the world. And in fact, in Genesis 6, that's exactly what the flood was, Noah's flood. It was God opening up these windows in the, in the dome, letting all these waters pour down and cover the earth. Okay, so that is not exactly an accurate cosmological picture of what we have, you know, of the universe. Yet, it still communicates this transcendent truth because there is, though that those details are deficient, the intention of the author is to communicate one important saving truth, which is that the origin, the ultimate cause of all of these things, is in fact God, and that God does this serenely. He orders the universe well and serenely through his word. So there's a theological truth being spoken even in these very, Uh, graphic details about how the universe was created, these very tactile details of this creation account. With this example, then, uh, which I think has been misread and misused many times, I think we can gain an appreciation for how one can read the study, read and study the Bible in a rational way, in a reasonable way by examining it with these proven methods of exegesis and of interpretation. In other words, I would conclude by saying it is possible to read the Bible rationally without rationalizing it, without filtering or editing it. Moreover, the reasonable reading of the Bible, as just illustrated here, does not preclude belief in its divine origin in any way. In fact, it is only by affirming that divine origin that one also can glean these sorts of genuine theological insights from it. Thank you. Thank you, Father Jordan, very much. Uh, We have time for a couple of questions. So does anyone have a question that they would like to ask? Yes, please. Uh, Just try to project so that people can hear. Okay, uh, so we have two questions. Mm -hmm. The first one is about the instrument.
1: Yes. uh, through your lecture, that human kind act of act that by God. Then, what uh, does it like conflict with the uh, concept concept of free will? Or do they like act in two different ways that mm-hmm. human kind as an instrument, and they can either be used by God or used by free will? Okay. The second question is that. Uh I'm wondering to you take on um, uh, the relation between Bible and reality. Mm-hmm. Is it that Bible and reality they also have to work that they also they all go towards the truth, mm-hmm. but Bible go in a more direct way, whereas reality you
0: have to uh, abstract it and then suppose the truth. Yeah. Those are two very good questions, thank you. Uh, so the first question was um, with regard to the instrumentality, and uh, just to make sure that I remember it, just because I just want to make sure that I have it right, is how essentially free will is maintained in the human author if if God is using the human author as an instrument. Yeah, kind
1: of. Or if God is using the human author as an instrument, then that
0: Yeah. Okay. So the, 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 the answer that Thomas Aquinas gives is basically that God, if we believe, so we have to, the premise has to be that we believe that God created the human person and created the intellect and the will. So if God is the creator of the intellect and will, then there's the possibility as this primary agent that he can move the intellect and will without coercing, without, and so it's analogous to how he talks about grace, um, how God can move, how God can um, inspire someone, but without coercing and forcing them to do it. And it's that there's not an opposition between God and the human person, but that there's a cooperation that they're working together toward the same goal. So that's how, in the theological language, that's how we would talk about that. Um, And the second question was with regards to reality versus the Bible and how they describe things. So I would say that they're both... I hope it, it's at least somewhat clear that they're they're both um, articulating aspects of truth, and that that truth is being communicated through them. So that I would, that as as I under, would understand, essentially um, what many of the, the natural sciences are you know are after is to describe the world and how things so. There are, I would the way I would put it is that there are uh, things that go beyond nature. There are supernatural realities. Uh, God is, uh, you know, the the um, spiritual dimension of the human person. These types of things. When, for example, the Psalms speak about how God's word, how God's truth can pierce. The heart more surely than a two-edged sword. How God um, really reacts to or or, uh, interacts with human beings. There is language to this effect in the Bible that I don't. That I would say that um, that uh, supernatural truth is being communicated. Transcendent truth is being communicated there. Where I don't think that that would be possible to arrive at as directly, at least in through the inquiry of natural sciences. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I thought that. I, I, I was wondering, like, uh, because it says something about people
1: who don't believe that
0: tribal like, naturalities, Oh, well, that was, yeah, so that was one particular, um, especially in the Enlightenment period, the early Enlightenment period, that was one of the things that Spinoza talked about was just keeping them separate that Reality is what we can see and observe and know and so the, the principle is that You have to use your experience that this is the enlightenment the, the enlightenment perspective You have to use your experience of how the world works as a filter to read the Bible so if you have never seen the Sun stop in the sky and you don't know anyone else who's seen the sun stop in the sky, that it's impossible that this biblical account of the sun stopping in the sky, that's impossible, and it's irrational to believe it. Because we know that the the sun doesn't just stop in the sky by our observance. So the idea is that, um, right, so that the Bible isn't talking about the real world or reality. It's making something else up. So, So then... Within the, so I would um, be inclined also to say, well, it might be that in the book of Joshua there, there is, it's, the, the point isn't to say this is exactly what happened in the past, exactly how it happened. But there might be a theological reality uh, and, and um, explanation or, or truth being articulated there it's a case-by-case kind of basis. Uh, because um, I would say, within the Catholic perspective, there is holding out for the fact that God does intervene and act in the world in a miraculous way sometimes. So, that's, that would be the, yeah. Yeah.
1: I'm think that the distinction between these two ways of knowledge, uh, from there, there kind of came, came out the. Uh,
0: I think perhaps eventually, yeah. I, th- I think that that, um, that is one of the effects. I think another one, yeah, uh, another one is just that there's this ability to read the Bible completely um, without any faith at all. Like, So, so the Bible is just a book. Like any other ancient book, and we can read it that way and dissect it that way, so that um, so it is a materialist reading of the Bible, and so I, I think that's probably fitting into that. Yeah. Let's take one more question, and then we're kind of running low well on time. And if you have more questions, you can join us for the discussion afterwards with Father. We can ask more. Let's take this question. Over here. Hi. Yeah. Uh, would you say that sometimes in the Bible? Yeah, so this is a good question. Uh so there are to uh, to preface this the, my answer to this question one of the things about um biblical interpretation of the church is also that there's not there's not always just one one interpretation but there can be multiple of a single passage so that there's uh polyvalence that it can have many meanings and so but but the question about this being there being metaphor also i would say analogy but the, these ways of comparing and then symbolic allegory um but then yes um it is important to hold out for uh the what benedict the 16th would say that god in his action in the world in that part of the christian mystery is Irreducibly, that God intervened in history; God acted in history, and the the most basic or the most fundamental, essential example of this is Jesus Christ becoming flesh. That this is a um, that this is a matter of faith. That but it's one that we we cannot explain away in terms of symbol or or human language uh, alone. So that. This, this is where Benedict XVI would, would identify this. Um, then my area of expertise is the Old Testament, so there, there are linguistic indicators, um, rhetorical uh, d- d- um, patterns in, in poetry and so forth that indicate when something is probably being asserted more metaphorically or analogically. One example that I would give you would be the book of Jonah, that there is uh, this parallelism in the two halves of the book. And it's like um, this word for very large is repeated throughout the book. So there was a really, 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 really big city and it was there was a really, really, really big fish. It was really, you know, huge. It was, you know, so everything is like really, 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 really big. Uh, So there's like all of these um, indicators. That's just one small example of like, this is meant to be a more of a symbolic pedagogical story than necessarily a historical uh, um, anecdote of of something that, that actually happened. The other example then would be like the book of Kings, which the author constantly refers to the sources that he's taking this from. So there's this book of Chronicles of Kings, of Judah, and there's a book of Chronicles of Kings of Israel, and he's drawing on these different things. So, it seems to be there that he's intending this to be no, this really happened. Th- these types of things really happened. So, there are clues within the text. I guess would be my sh- the the short answer that this might be intended metaphorically, this symbolically, or allegorically. This really happened historically. So, the, all different things are there. Is, does that make sense? Okay. All right, thank you. So thank you all for coming. I conclude by thanking Father Gordon.